across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. The snow is falling, the temperatures are plummeting, the floodwaters are rising and the cases of coronavirus continue to increase as we near the end of the first month out of the European Union. Today, the talks begin to determine what the future relationship between us and the EU will be in terms of trade. But judging by what we were told yesterday by our friends in France, it's not going to matter much longer. Frexit is coming. The front pages are filled with more dire warnings about a world pandemic and pictures of women sunbathing in bikinis uh, and wearing masks in Tenerife. Even Jon Snow has self-isolated on Channel 4 News because he just got back from Iran. Back home, meanwhile, we are still anxiously awaiting the first ballot in the race to become Labour leader. The trouble is, it's not really a race, is it? And the result doesn't really matter. As we saw yesterday in Prime Minister's questions, even if the leader of the opposition proves to be less useless than Jeremy Corbyn, Labour are about as irrelevant as they have ever been. It looks as though Keir Starmer is still very much the front-runner, but the people who say they want to vote for Rebecca Long-Bailey have actually said they'd rather keep Jeremy Corbyn. Now Lisa Nandy has effectively branded all their working-class voters in the North racist for not being anti-racist enough. We'll talk to former Labour MP Jim Fitzpatrick to see what he makes of it all. He was always one of the more sensible voices in the Labour Party, uh, but he retired at the last election. 0344 499 Coming up this morning, we will also find out if the third runway at Heathrow Heath is going to go ahead. We're expecting a court ruling any minute now. We'll tell you why being religious might actually be good for your health, and why someone hacked Pep Guardiola's emails. 0344 499 is the number to call us on. And don't forget, you can now watch us as well as listening to us. We are live streaming on YouTube, on Facebook, and on Twitter. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet it is of course talk radio mid-morning with mike graham talk radio now there are many reasons to be worried about why we need to have a proper opposition in this country boris boris johnson was kind of savage yesterday by jeremy corbyn but not really in a particularly meaningful way you know boris has got a, a, a very big majority 80 uh, is the biggest majority he's got but most of the damage that was done to Boris yesterday was actually done by Sajid Javid, who did a rather nice kind of, shall we say, civilised breakdown uh, of what he thought was going wrong inside number 10. Jeremy Corbyn just goes after the same old uh, tropes. He tells him that he doesn't care about the people. He tries to paint Boris as some kind of mad maverick who just cares for his own power and couldn't be bothered to even think of any policy that might be good for the country. Kept going on and on and on about why Boris wasn't seen in any of the areas of Britain that had been flooded. But he really didn't land any punches particularly, unless you are a member of the front bench of the Labour Party, uh, and you are in the thrall uh, of Jeremy Corbyn because you think he's such a decent man and such a nice bloke. Well, nobody in the country thinks that, unfortunately, apart from everyone who would like to see him remaining as the leader of the Labour Party. Keir Starmer looks as though he's going to win, but my question to you this morning is this. What exactly is the point of the Labour Party? And to help us answer that, we've got Jim Fitzpatrick, former uh, MP for Poplar and Limehouse. Jim, a very good morning to you. Morning, Michael. How are you doing, sir? I'm all right, thanks. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well. Politics is a much uh, less in interesting place without you in it, I have to say. So I thought, well, we could get hold of you this morning. You know, the voice you're of... Very, you're, you're very kind, but if you're live streaming on video, you won't be able to pick your nose anymore, <laughs> will you? No, I won't. There's a lot of things I can't do anymore, to be honest, which is slightly <laughs> worrying. I also have to wear a tie as well, which is, uh, which is sometimes uh, good and sometimes bad. But, I mean, it's a serious question I'm asking here this yeah. morning because I'm not sure really any longer what the, uh, what the Labour Party stands for. I don't think Keir Starmer knows what it stands for. I don't think Lisa Nandy knows what it stands for. And I really don't think um, Rebecca Long-Bailey knows what it stands for either. 
Well, I think there's two different uh, perspectives. One is winning the, the ballot to become the Labour leader. And obviously that's a complete sideshow as far as the public's concerned. Mm. Because the candidates are pandering to different prejudices within the party to try and pick up votes from both sides, the Corbynistas um, and the non-Corbynistas. Um, in terms of the other perspective, being the opposition, that is a really important job in Parliament, regardless of whether the majority is, is one or a hundred. Um, there has to be an opposition in Parliament. Sometimes it comes from your own bike benches. Um, it should be led by the opposition benches to actually test and probe and challenge and try and get the government to recognise that it does sometimes make mistakes and to amend them. Mm. And as far as the way that uh, the party's kind of broken down now, you know, Keir Starmer has said in previous debates that technically speaking it's the biggest political party in Europe and it should act as if it is that. But it doesn't appear to be that. It appears to be a party filled uh, with tiny factions of different groups. Well, there's always been a, a large element of the Labour Party who are much more comfortable in opposition. And, and I think that's very much what Jeremy and, and his group are. They wouldn't want to have to make the compromises of government which when you are in government, you have to make compromises. You can't just dictate to the people this is what's going to happen. You have to take business with you. You have to take the people with you. You have to win the arguments and, uh, and not just lay down uh, new laws. And sometimes that means persuading the whole of your own uh, side, let alone um, the majority in Parliament. So in, in that instance, there are many people in the Labour Party who don't want to win, um, seriously, I don't think, very much more comfortable just throwing bricks from the other side. Yes, exactly right. And I mean, as far as the, the sort of the, the, the worth of, of Jeremy Corbyn staying in power, I mean, everybody understood that he didn't want to walk away straight away, even though there were some who would have liked him to do that. It does seem to be taking an inordinate amount of time uh, to go all the way through to April and have more of these Prime Minister's question sessions where he just appears to be a kind of dead man walking, really. Well, there were two reasons for that. One was to do everything he could to paved the way for one of his acolytes, one of his supporters, to win the ballot to take over. And the second one was to make sure that they cemented in uh, the foundations of Corbynism into the party um, in terms of policy, in terms of recruitment, in terms of senior uh, appointments. Um, when the hard left win power, they're very difficult to, to prize out. And this was all about making sure that they left as solid a, a foundation as they possibly could, and therefore they needed time to do that. And whilst they might not be, be seen to be doing an awful lot on the surface, behind the scenes there's a lot of stuff going on to try to make sure that whoever wins the contest, they're going to have to deal with a party which might not necessarily support their particular brand of Labour. Yeah, but going forward, whatever then happens, if Keir Starmer does win, where does that leave those who didn't want him? Because will they sort of file in behind him or will they still uh, throw stones from the outside? Well, I think the majority will, uh, will ruin behind them. Certainly the majority of the people will ruin behind them. There will be uh, a disciplined and unified uh, welcome for the new leader. Um, there will be some who will just be resentful that Jeremy... Um, has had to go and that their uh, chosen one uh, wasn't successful if indeed that's what actually happened. Um, so in, in that instance, I think there will be a disciplined handover. Mm. Of course, with the majority that uh, the Conservatives have, um, it's almost certain unless they throw it away that they've got the next election in the bag. This is about laying the foundations for the election after next. Yeah. Um, unless the Tories really make a mess of it, um, there's very little chance of Labour 
having the swings necessary and winning the seats necessary to form the next government. Well, that's exactly right. We'll get on to Lisa Nandy and what she said in a minute. But look, let's look at what's been happening over the last few months. Diane Abbott said she's going to step down from the, from the front benches, basically. Uh, we've got Emily Thornberry, who didn't get enough votes to get into the final section of the ballot. Uh, you've got people like Jess Phillips, who a lot of people thought was the sort of the next potential leader who couldn't get enough votes to even get past the first stage. You know, you're going to have a very different looking front bench, I think, aren't you? Yeah, and, uh, and I think this is where Keir has been relatively sensible, saying that one, he's not taking anything for granted, and two, he's not making any pronouncements about who might get a job and who might not get a job. That's, uh, that's very much taking things for granted. And mm. uh, In terms of um, people saying that they won't stand, uh, I think there are some people recognising that they wouldn't have a chance of being selected into a shadow cabinet if it wasn't for Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, and whoever is the leader will have the pick of some very talented people on, on Labour's benches. Um, uh, and they will, it will be a new team and they will take time to find their feet and to settle. Uh, and that's not going to be a quick fix. No, it won't. And I mean, are, are you seeing any sort of uh, sign of, of what Keir Starmer's Labour will actually look like? Because I don't really get any vibe from him about what sort of policy he favours. You know, he's, he's kind of painted as a centrist, but he's kind of pretending not to be for the purposes of winning to, uh, at this point, right? I mean, I don't really know what he stands for. Well, I think, as, uh, as I said right at the start, he's been, he's been trying to make sure that he didn't alienate the majority of Labour members by trashing everything that's happened in the past five years, because obviously some of the policies that were put forward at the general election were very popular. It's just that there are far too many of them, and nobody believed that we could implement everything. Um, at the same token, he's recently been made more positive statements about not trashing the achievements of the 97 to 2010 Labour government um, and, uh, and trying to make sure that he's shoring up his moderate base as well as winning votes from, from the left. I don't think we'll see the real Keir Starmer uh, until and if he wins, um, and then it will take time for that to emerge. When he was um, uh, Director General, or when he was the CPS uh, Chief Executive, um, he was very well respected. He demonstrated great sensitivity. He was a very able um, Chief Prosecutor, and the leadership he gave to CPS was well was highly regarded by everybody who came across him. And in that instance, he's clearly got the skill, he's clearly got the intelligence, um, but it will take him time to find his feet, as it takes everybody in any new job, whatever new job you go to, it'll take you three to six months, and this is one of the biggest jobs in politics. Yeah, and I mean, the, the, the biggest thing for him to do is to cement his, his time in the first three to six months, to make sure he doesn't get somehow stabbed so many times in the back uh, that, he feel, that he falls at the first hurdle. I'm just going to interrupt you for a second, Jim, to say that uh, the breaking news we have this morning is that Heathrow's third runway has indeed been blocked by a court oh. challenge from eco-campaigners. So Sadiq Khan uh, has won in the courts alongside Friends of the Earth, Greenpeace um, and uh, Plan B. All sorts of reasons why this is a bad idea, aren't there? What's your view, Jim? Well, uh, when I was aviation minister between 2007 and 2009 and gave the green light to the Thurgunwick Heathrow, there were a whole number of legal challenges mm. mounted by a variety of different groups. Uh, we beat um, uh, every one of them, bar one, which was a minor challenge, which we overcome uh, quite easily. Uh, and with, uh, with, with, with the new world that we're in um, post-Brexit, uh, the connectivity issues are going to be absolutely critical for the UK, um, notwithstanding the, the, the COVID-19, the coronavirus, which will obviously restrict travel to a whole number of places. Once that's out of the way, 
the ability of UK PLC to, to function, um, to expand its exports, to expand its reach in terms of uh, business, um, that third runway at Heathrow is absolutely critical to make sure um, that we're able to function in the 21st century. So yeah. that's a very disappointing result. It is disappointing. It's also, I think, people in this country are sick to death uh, of seeing people and groups of people blocking government proposals and, 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 and you know, genuinely well-thought-through plans in the courts. Well, you know, that's well, what people don't like to see. Well, absolutely. And if you look at um, all of our European competitors, Berlin, Paris, Amsterdam, Madrid, and you go to Istanbul, Dubai, they've all built four and six runway airports in the last 50 years. Yeah. We haven't built a major runway um, that was uh, like the one that's planned for Heathrow in 50 years. I know. This was, put, this was put forward in the 2003 white paper. We initiated the decision in the consultation in 2007. The Davies report between 2010 and 13 changed Conservative policy to support it because the Lib Dems blocked it when the coalition were in between 2010 and 2015. So this is a, a this, I don't know how much of a major setback, but if it's not easily overcome, then it will be a major setback, not just for, for Heathrow and for aviation, but for UK PLC. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Let's just have a listen uh, to what I want you to comment on as well. This is uh, Lisa Nandy uh, making a speech yesterday about what she thinks uh, of immigration. This is really personal to me because my dad came to this country from India in the 1950s and found that he couldn't um, find somewhere to live, that he couldn't marry who he chose to, that he couldn't drink in his local pub. And it led him to go on to become involved in the race relations struggle and later to help Roy Jenkins to write the Race Relations Act, one of the greatest gifts that Labour's ever given to this country. But if we're honest, what has happened in the last few years has really started to unravel. And when I worked with child refugees and immigrants, I saw how under Labour we didn't do enough to, to create a welcoming environment for immigrants. Too often we had the good refugee and the bad asylum seeker, the good immigrant and the bad immigrant. Labour must never go back to a time when we were putting immigration slogans on mugs. Now is the moment that we have to stand up and fight for the compassionate, decent country we know that we can be. And I start from the point of view that it's no use hiding like Donald Trump or Boris Johnson do, saying, I'm not a racist. You are either a racist or an anti-racist. It requires you to take an active stand. That is why I spoke out about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. That is why I will always stand up and champion the rights of people, whichever background they come from in this country. We are an anti-racist party and we must shout it loudly and proudly. She's basically saying there, Jim, that if you're not uh, anti-racist enough, you are a racist, which I think is not a very clever way to approach it, is it? Well, I'm, I'm not sure that um, uh, that's right, Mike. I'm, I, I, I've been listening to what Lisa said there with her own family experience, with her dad, with her work, with her job. And she's obviously come against the, the, the harsh end um, uh, in this country. Yeah. Um, and will it, will it any other country in the world um, that are racist people in the UK... Um, the same as anywhere else. In fact, I would go so far as to say um, there is prejudice in every single human being of one shape or another. Mm -hmm. um, society is about laying down rules, regulations and laws to say that um, we should behave in a particular manner. And if you don't behave in a civilised fashion, then you run against the law and you can be taken to task. You can be prosecuted and, and if necessary, you can be penalised. And, and obviously that comes down to what kind of offence you're, you're committing. Mm. But the, 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 the fact that in, 
uh, in terms of saying, well, you're racist or anti-racist, um, I don't I don't really get that. Everybody has got prejudice in them. Yes. It's about how we control that in our own minds, our own words, our own actions, and how society lays down law to make sure that we shut down the space for racists, to make sure that they are not able to, um, to flout their poisoned attitudes mm. to affect everybody else. No, I agree. So, and I think it's very wrong of her, and uh, as it has been for some of these, um, you know, rap stars of, of late, Dave and Stormzy, to make out that this is a racist country. Because you're absolutely right. Of course people have prejudice. It's a, it's a natural human trait. But this is not a racist country. In fact, it's very far from being a racist country. And in fact, an awful lot of the immigration uh, voting that took place during Brexit and for people who wanted to leave the European Union who thought immigration was a thing, it was all about immigration from the EU, not from other countries where people yeah. are maybe a different colour. It was nothing to do yeah. with that. Yeah. It was all to do with yeah. people coming from Eastern Europe and taking their jobs. Yeah, it was economic and cultural, yeah. uh, not in terms of race and colour. Um, and, and in that instance, it reinforces the point I'm making, that there is prejudice in everyone. And, and sometimes uh, the rules that are laid down in Parliament to some people will appear unfair, um, but Parliament's job is to have the debate, have a discussion, arrive at conclusions and implement laws which are fair um, and are able to be implemented to the satisfaction um, of the majority. And I think I, I agree with you entirely. I think it's absolutely right that we are not a racist country. When, when Stormzy says um, the UK is 100% racist, I mean, I was shocked at that. But mm. then read, reading the actual words, he, he, you know, the interpretation that he is 100% sure there is racism in the UK. Yeah. Well, yeah, I can agree with that because there is racism in the UK. Yeah. There's racism in every country. And for people to suggest that what he was saying is that the UK is a 100% racist country and that everybody's a racist... I don't think that's what he said. Oh, I don't think that's what he said either, but, but that doesn't make it any better, to be honest, because he's still calling the country racist, regardless of, of, of whichever way he, he phrased it. But the bottom line for me, Jim, is that you speak sense on this, on this issue. You absolutely speak to the people on this issue. The problem for me with the current Labour Party sort of choices is that all three people who are there leading the, the party and wishing to lead the party are muddling all of these waters, and it's not good for the country. Well, I think there's a, a degree of wearing your heart on your sleeve to a certain extent. And there's a, a, as I said again at the beginning, the Labour leadership contest is a sideshow. Apart from you and me and political um, activists in different parties, I don't think anybody else is watching the Labour contest. And I think there might be mild interest on April the 4th um, when the winner of the contest is declared. Um, but... There is a world outside the Westminster bubble, and I think the vast majority of people are probably not even aware of who the three candidates who've gone through to the final ballot are. <laughs> That's the tragedy, isn't it? One final question for you, Jim, because I won't keep you too long. If you were, if, if you assume, as I do, that Keir Starmer's probably going to win this, what would be the first thing that he should do when he becomes leader of the Labour Party? <laughs> a breathe a sigh of relief, sit down, <laughs> have a long drink, and don't do anything straight away. Okay, very good advice Jim. I told you you were whist. You, I mean, we need cool heads <laughs> like yours. Jim Fitzpatrick great to talk to you. Poplar uh, and Limehouse MP, uh, former Labour MP of course. Uh, now as I said uh, the world of politics a much duller place and a much less well informed place uh, now that he's no longer part of it. But what did you make of what he had to say? I think he's absolutely right you know this is not a racist country. The Labour Party uh, candidates who are making out that it is I think are making a massive mistake you've got Rebecca Long-Bailey making out that she's going to start punishing companies 
colonies if there's any kind of flooding problem, uh, that she's going to punish the polluters. We've just had the breaking news as well uh, that the Eco Planks appear to have won and the Heathrow third runway will now not be built uh, because they blocked it in the High Court, in the Court of Appeal. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham here at Talk Radio, live streaming on YouTube, on Facebook and on Twitter, of course. You can now watch us as well as listening to us. We spent a great deal of yesterday's show talking about uh, all of the kind of panic measures that were being put into place, uh, all of the things that were being said by Public Health England, uh, the fact that schools were being closed, the fact that, you know, Tenerife was now becoming a sort of a no-go zone. We've got pictures this morning on the front pages of of women sunbathing in bikinis wearing masks. It all looks a bit surreal. Uh, We've got more cases apparently uh, just announced in the country. People who have tested positive from Italy and Tenerife in this country. Uh, The head teacher of Burbage Primary School in Buxton told Sky News the school was shut because a pupil's parent has tested positive for COVID-19. It's that story that just doesn't go away. But one of the things we thought we should try and get some guidance on was what actually happens if you not only get told to self-isolate, but somebody says you have to self-isolate, it's not a choice, it's not, there's nothing else you can do. Obviously, if you're a parent, you have to stay home to look after your child. If you have a job, are you entitled to some kind of compensation or does the employer have to pay you to take two weeks off? We're going to talk now to Max Winthrop, who is chair of the Employment Law Committee at the Law Society. Max, very good morning to you. Good morning. It's a tricky one, this, because, I mean, obviously, even just in our own office here, there's some people who work on a freelance basis. Uh, There are some people who are paid uh, whether they turn up or not because they've got a staff contract of one kind or another. What is the position if if you are told you must take two weeks off uh, and and you perhaps are facing two weeks without pay? Well, the point you made just now is exactly the right one to make. The first kind of thing you've got to consider is what are the terms and conditions that people are working under? Yeah. So as you rightly point out, if we're talking about those uh, with, for want of a better expression, freelance-type contracts, those that don't have the rights of an employee and are only going to be paid when they work, their position could be difficult. Mm. Because if the the person engaging them simply says, well, actually, for the time being, we don't need your services, Mm. and they're paid for what they do, well, unfortunately, that's the nature of that type of engagement. They won't necessarily get paid. And that might be the problem for some parents at the moment whose whose children's schools have been shut down because they, obviously, if they've got children that are too young to stay home on their own, they're going to have to take time off as well to look after their own children. Yeah, indeed. And, of course, they won't even be in a position to say, well, hang on a minute, Um, I've got some medical condition that stops me working. Yes. What's stopping them working is the decision that the school should shut down. Right. But if we move on to the question of those who are actually employees... Mm and where the employer says to them, stay away from work, that gets a, there's elements there that are, are of interest. I mean, you'd kind of think there would be some provision in the law generally to deal with medical suspensions. Yeah. And there is, but not with this sort of suspension. Right. There are some very narrowly defined health and safety uh, areas where the employer can suspend an employee, but if they do, they've got to keep paying them yes. at least for 26 weeks. But that's not really relevant to this type of problem we've got at the moment. Mm. So you're back to what the parties have agreed in the first place. If we were looking at this as a as ordinary sickness, if you like, yeah. then the normal rules about statutory sick pay, about occupational sick pay will, will kick in. Uh, and again, you go to the contract to see what they might be. Right. I mean, would it be wise for anyone at this moment, if, if, if nothing like this is happening in their company, would it be wise for them to sort of approach 
um, their managers or the HR people and say, look, you know, what if what if this happens? What you know, what if that happens? What what will you be doing? Yeah, I think dialogue, common sense approach to these problems before they become a problem is always very very sensible. Yeah. and I think most in, you know, uh, sensible companies, most employees are going to think, how can we work together to get through this? So, unfortunately, it may be that some people have to take hard questions. Mm. Should you put yourself at the risk of ending up getting isolated in Tenerife or wherever it might be now, or should you perhaps think about what, what's the best thing to do? Should I be cancelling holidays and looking to, the, the, to those arrangements with the tour provider? Well, yeah. What kind of redress would that give me, mm. rather than risk a situation where you may not be able to work? But that aside, I think companies as well... Um, nowadays, of course, depends on what you do, but there's an awful lot more provision for working from home, for example. Yes. And I think if companies are flexible, they'll be able to work through this without um, you know, throwing the burden onto the shoulders of, uh, of, of an employee um, and also without kind of being too disruptive to their own business or, or the economy generally. Yeah, because, I mean, I think in terms of travel, people are getting a bit concerned. People are already starting to, to ask questions like, should I be going away uh, to, to Europe for the weekend, which is what I was mm. planning to do? Should I be, you know, nipping across to uh, to the Canary Islands for a bit of sunshine because I'm feeling fed up with all the snow and the rain and the floods? You know, I think people are going to start making uh, decisions against doing stuff like that. I think that's quite quite true. Now, I suppose from an employment law perspective, another question that arises would be, what's the position if the employer says, actually, we're going to introduce a ban on what you do in your holidays yes. because of that risk? Mm. Now, that's a harder one to answer as to whether that would be permitted. Yeah, well, I mean, if, if somebody came up to me and said, I'm going to Tenerife for the weekend, right, um, and I'll see you on Monday, I'll be like, I don't think you should come back. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Mm. Uh, I mean, perhaps the Tenerife one is now uh, almost a matter of common sense. That well, right. Wouldn't necessarily yeah, but what if you've booked it for trip? ages and you've paid yeah. for it and you've mm. got nowhere, nowhere else to go? You've got you've got, you've booked you know four days off work or whatever, um, and you want to make sure that you do what you said you were going to do. Mm. Interesting. Now, supposing if I could just use that example, then supposing you're a long-serving employee. Yeah. This is something you've kind of been planning for for ages. Everybody's you know it's all booked in your your holiday diary and all the rest of it. And you decide you're going to take it, but your employer comes up and says, look, um, sorry, this is going to be a really big, we can't risk you catching the disease, being isolated in Tenerife mm. or whatever. We're giving you a, a direct work instruction not to go. Right. And if you break it, then we're going to treat it as a disciplinary issue. Now, mm. I can foresee that happening. The consequences of that would depend on the exact circumstances. There could be situations where... And how much of a temper your wife's got. Yeah, absolutely. You know, <laughs> you, you, you're going to have to start balancing things, aren't you? Right. Uh, do you, do you, how do you rank your that, the once-in-a-lifetime chance to go on holiday, uh, perhaps, uh, or a fairly ordinary weekend break uh, uh, with the risk that you may be destroying this kind of trust and confidence you have yeah. in the workplace? Um, now, those are very difficult questions to answer in the abstract because they'll all depend on the individual facts. Mm. Um, and, of course, don't forget that you only really get your, your full set of employment protection rights when you've been with your employer for two years. Yes. Yeah, it's a very tr I mean, I can see all sorts of uh, ramifications here that we haven't even thought of, and I'm sure plenty that you and I haven't even dis discussed on this, on this little segment here. Yeah. But it's a real minefield, isn't it? 
it, it's dangerous. I, I think it requires a lot of common sense. And I, also, I think really just sitting down uh, and starting to think about the contingencies here. What mm. sort of planning as a company needs to be done? Do you need to get your employees on site now rather than suddenly find, you know, act in panic and tell somebody uh, sort of five to five on a Friday when they're just about to nip on the... Uh, Gatwick Express to, or something. Yeah, or, or whatever. Yeah, that... that that sort of scenario is not going to help uh, em- employment relations, and now's the time to start thinking these things through. Mm. Yeah, it's going to be uh, it's going to be tough times, I think, for quite a few people for quite a long time. Max, thanks very much indeed. Max Winterop, there, chair of the Employment Law so- uh, Committee at the Law Society, because I mean, you may have a, a, a really good relationship with with your. Uh, uh, the people you work for. Uh, you may have a great relationship with the school that your children go to, but this is going to uh, sort of throw up all sorts of interesting conundrums and quandaries for people, um, particularly if you are uh, booking a holiday and you have decided to go away. Well, I mean, if you have decided to go to the Canary Islands, what do you do? I'd love to hear from you. 0344 499 1000. We've already got the Six Nations game between Ireland and Italy cancelled. We've already got talk of uh, football matches possibly being cancelled just in this country. We've already got talk as well uh, of other rugby matches in the Six Nations being under threat. We've now got the Euros possibly uh, under threat as well. So far, the Olympics apparently is not under threat, uh, but it could still get cancelled. There's an awful lot of things going on uh, as we speak. And as much as the coronavirus is a story that I don't want to talk about endlessly every single day, it's difficult not to because every single day there's another angle to it and there's another thing that pops up. Uh, It turns out that in Saudi Arabia, they've actually told pilgrims not to come to Mecca which I think is the first time in history they've ever said that. This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio, until one o'clock, of course, because then uh, Matthew Wright takes over. Then, of course, Dan Wharton's going to be here uh, with the Drive Time Show from four o'clock. Lots for him to talk about over the course uh, of this uh, next few hours, because uh, it's a fast-moving situation. The Brexit trade talks are getting underway as well. Uh, We'll find out probably by the end of the day how that's been going, uh, whether it uh, has any kind of conclusion, of course. We won't know maybe until September, so it's going to be going for quite some time. But I'll tell you what we're going to do right now. We're going to talk about your general well-being because it might well be the case that if you are religious and if you have a religion that you follow you might actually be more healthy let's talk to andy coates curate of st michael's in wood green who i happen to know uh, was not always of course a curate because uh, you know he was one of what you might describe as a lay religious person andy very good afternoon to you good afternoon mike good now, to speak to you. now good to talk to you as well i suppose you've always been religious have you uh, yeah, I grew up certainly with, in a religious background, in a, in a religious household, yes. Yeah, yes, that's right. and your decision to become a curate and to get into the sort of the, the profession, if you like, of religion, yeah. um, how, how did you come about that? Uh, well, I, I, my father is a priest, um, I'm now retired, and uh, I grew up in a, in a religious household, um, going to church from a very young age. Um, it, it was, if you like, my decision, but also a decision that's very much informed by uh, the judgment and perspective of others. Right. As they look upon um, uh, the, the church process means that you, you go to a range of different people, see a different range of people who, uh, who make an assessment as to whether they think you're suitable for, for the priesthood. So, right. um, 
So, so my intention certainly, but it doesn't come without uh, confirmation from, from others along the way. No, quite. Because one of the things that I suppose uh, is interesting to me always is that, you know, I've, I've sometimes said that people like Extinction Rebellion and organisations like that have kind of grown out of the fact that people have become less religious over time and they actually want to belong to something. Because I think for a lot of people, religion is, is about a shared experience, isn't it? Yeah, of course. I, th I think... Um, People um, uh, have have come to adopt different positions on on the on institutional religion, if you like. But um, but that but that yearning to to belong to something, that yearning for uh, a deeper meaning in life, that 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 doesn't go away. Um, and the church is still very very in, in a very good place to to provide a response to that. Yes, yes, which which brings us to this study, which I'm not entirely convinced by, but it's the 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 ONS that have done it, so they are yeah. a legitimate organisation. But yeah. they've given us things like one in five atheists smokes compared to one in ten Christians and Muslims, non-believers are more likely to drink alcohol than fast. I'm not really buying any of that necessarily, but you might be happier than other people. Well, I think certainly a part of faith is a commitment to try and live according to certain values and principles. Um, and certain do's and don'ts come along with that. And, and if adhered to, one may live longer. But as you say, much more interesting uh, is this relationship that the report hints at between faith and well-being, yeah. uh, which as we become increasingly literate as a society about mental health, is becoming more, more and more of an issue. Um, the Bishop of London is giving a lecture on this in, in April. Um, it, so in my own context in Wood Green, a city like London where I've lived and worked for 10 years, it's all too easy to be anonymous. It's all too easy to adopt a kind of facelessness. Yeah. And great, great loneliness can come with that. And what faith so often offers is the opportunity to be part of a worshipping community. Uh, and, and what comes with that is, it, Mike, it is being known, establishing connection. Yeah. It's not just a comfort blanket. It's about being truly known by one another. And we believe as Christians, recognizing that we're known and loved by God. Um, so a sense of our own health and well-being is also rooted in the well-being of others. Mm. Um, and that's evidenced by the great number of churches providing uh, food banks, winter night shelters, youth clubs. Um, so a sense of connection uh, with the world around us is what, is what faith can offer with others, with the natural world, and ultimately with God. Um, so a healthy worshipping community can offer support, uh, an antidote to loneliness where anxiety and sufferings are shared, um, and, and give it a greater perspective. Um, and, and what comes with that is a sense of accountability, yeah. uh, both both to one another and to God. Yeah, I was um, going to ask you about anxiety as well, because that's something we talk about a lot now, particularly amongst young people who are kind of anxious about the, the climate, they're anxious about the world ending, they're anxious about their future. And I guess, uh, or I'm, I'm guessing, that, that a religious belief makes you uh, sort of less worried about stuff because you sort of know how everything is, whether it's true or not. And some people would suggest to you that, that you know, your faith is simply that, it's faith, it may not be true. But mm. people would say, uh, at least you have a, you, you sort of have an explanation for everything. Uh, I, wouldn't, I, I wouldn't put it in, <laughs> in those terms. I think faith, faith is so often about a, a level of trust. Yes. Uh, Recognising our dependence on something, on something greater. Mm. That, that won't take away every anxiety, but it, it will give us something to, to, to be rooted in. Um, but it gives you a meaning for everything, doesn't it? Certainly, yes, certainly a, a meaning, and, and, and a meaning which is shared with others. Um, and, and, and through, as I've said, talking about it, establishing connection with one another. Um, often, often that's a means to, to cope with our anxieties about, about what we face in life. The anxieties don't, aren't entirely removed, um, but we have, we have resources around us to, to be able to deal with them in, in different ways, perhaps. Yes. Um, uh, the other thing I'd say is, is, is religion and faith is, is about balance. Um, so, so many secular health kicks, whether it's the, the park run or the latest diets, are about absolutes, you know, treating health uh, like a consumer product, something we can acquire. Mm. So, so salvation through the, through the gym and the diet. 
Um, but if we, if we focus on just the physical, um, we, we, we've seen where we, the mess we can get into with regards to body image um, and the issues that, that come along with that. Um, what many faiths offer is a pattern of fasting and feasting, um, acknowledging that healthiness is about balance in, in body, mind, and spirit. So, so you know, thinking about the you know, levels of anxiety we've been talking about. Um, yesterday was Ash Wednesday, you may, you may be aware. And we, I, we in fact, funnily enough, I, I did remember it, because only because, as you may or may not know, I was, I was raised as a Catholic, and so, yeah, you know, yeah. this was a big week uh, when, I was a, when I was a kid, not just because of the pancakes. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, and... and, and and we've entered now the holy season of Lent, which is a, a season of fasting, uh, you know, a season, a, a penitential season. But it's, it's not just about giving, it's, it's not just about, um, you know, about, about suffering and, and sorrow and feeling, feeling gloomy. Uh, it's preparation for the great feast of Easter. Mm. So, so religion offers that balance, you know, of, of fasting and feasting, not just sort of going hard in the gym um, and, and that, that being a way to cope with our anxiety, because often that, that, that's not the answer. Right. Um, the, the Christian calendar, and I'm, obviously I'm, that's the perspective I'm speaking from, offers, offers that balance. Um, and as a church, I mean, part of our challenge is, is getting across the message that church isn't somewhere we, we just go when we're feeling good and we're feeling presentable, but actually it's a, a diverse community which is there for you both in times of joy and sadness. You know, churches, are, churches, some say, are, are hospitals for sinners, not museums for saints. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and that's where you know, we meet together in, 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 with that understanding when we, when we go to church, when we're part of that worshipping yeah. community. And how is the community at the moment in terms of, you know, we hear quite often that, that in some places and in some areas of religion, you know, there's a sort of growth spurt going on, particularly in some of the more, um, the sort of, uh, you know, what's the, I'm, I'm thinking of, of sort of the Anglican, you know, the churches that are operating out of pubs and things like that, they're kind of the, the, gos yeah, of the gospel kind of movement. Yeah, I mean, there's lot, lots of different ex expressions of church are, are, are emerging in different communities. In, yeah. in Wood Green, which is the, the, the place where, where I am, um, you know, we were, we're, we're sort of, we're, we're there with, you know, the church has services every day available to people, but we're also trying to do new things to reach out to the community in different ways. So Ash Wednesday yesterday, we were, we were down at the, my colleagues and I and some members of the congregation were down at the tube station in Wood Green, offering, um, offering prayers and ashes on the forehead, the, you know, the sign of the cross that we make on people's foreheads on Ash Wednesday, offering that outside the station. And, and the, the response might surprise some of your listeners. I mean, you know, very, very positive. You know, people want to engage. They want to talk about faith. Um, it's just that it's a big step sometimes for people to step through the church doorways. So we're, you know, we're trying to think about new ways where we can, we can go and meet people where they are. Yes. Um, and so that's something that we're, we're thinking about as we, as we enter into Lent. We've got a Lent course beginning this evening about silence, about silent prayer, um, and, and getting people to engage with their faith through, through those ways. So, so faith in Wood Green is alive and well, I tell you, but, but, uh, but lots, of, uh, lots of work to be done also. Sure. What are you giving up for Lent then this year? Uh, giving up, uh, well, I'm trying again to give up biting my nails, which are atrocious, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but also taking some things on as well, giving up sweets, the usual, okay. but also uh, setting aside a bit more time to, uh, to, to, to pray, um, setting a time aside uh, to engage, engage more fully with the regular prayer that we have in our church. Um, yeah, and also sort of not looking at the mobile phone as much. Uh, you know, we're, so many of us are That's a great them. idea, it's, actually. I think you know, if everybody did that, that, we'd all be a lot happier. Well, it's a real, you know, it's a real drug, and we're on it first thing in the morning and last thing at night. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, with you know, constant distractions, constant interruptions, do we actually find the time uh, to be still, to mm. be silent, to, be, uh, to, you know, to properly listen to one another and not just sort of fire off a few more tweets as it Yes. Goes? 
no, I think you're absolutely right. Well, listen, great to talk to you, uh, Andy. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Reverend Andy Coates, their curate, priest at St Michael's Wood in Wood Green. I think there's something to it. I think, uh, you know, you can definitely be happier as somebody who is religious, just on the basis that, you know, you're absolutely sure of where you're going. You're absolutely sure of where you've been. You're absolutely sure of what's going to happen to you. Um, and everybody who isn't religious doesn't really poss possibly have that surety. But, uh, you know, by all means, disagree with me, if, if you will. 0344 499 1000 uh, is the number. Much more going on. Uh, we're going to talk to Mark Bukowski, PR guru, coming up. Not about the royal family this time, but about, apparently, how if you're a baddie, you shouldn't be carrying an iPhone. This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Got some breaking news for you on the coronavirus. Apparently Pope Francis has cancelled an event as he's taken ill in Rome uh, amid the coronavirus crisis. Well, um, it's really uh, getting somewhere if it's hit the Vatican now. But, I mean, it's quite a remarkable story, this. We will be uh, bringing you up to date with all of it throughout the course of the day here uh, on Talk Radio. Matthew Wright uh, taking over from one o'clock. Uh, and then it's Dan Wooden from four. Lots of great tweets from you on the homeless front. A couple of people saying, you know, what the government could do uh, is buy a load of containers because you can buy them uh, for as little as a few hundred quid. Uh, maybe you could put some of the homeless people in those. Well, I mean, I suppose you could, but it's not exactly... I mean, it certainly would keep them warmer than from being outside in the, in the cold... Uh, in the winter weather, but I'm not sure that you would want people just sort of dossing down inside uh, inside big, big containers. And Beachcomber says, uh, Hi Mike, just heard you talking about homeless in Hastings, St Leonard's, Bexhill and Eastbourne. There is a group called Warming Up the Homeless, so I've retweeted that uh, for anyone. Chris says, I'm going back a few years now, and I'm not saying this response is common, but I talked to a homeless person about why they couldn't get a place to live by registering homeless. He said, I don't want a place to live. I think there are people who don't particularly want a place to live, but I don't think uh, there are many of them. Uh, here's Douglas, who doesn't believe in uh, religion, he says, uh, what a load of rubbish. Uh, religion appeals to the self-delusional, just as the Extinction Rebellion mob, which is also just like religion and just like the Corbynistas. If you have to lean on a sky daddy to be happy, then you're not really. Religion poisons everything. Well, that's certainly one view. Uh, but Sarah says, Andy was talking brilliant common sense, and you have to believe it. I think if you do have some kind of faith, you probably are, uh, generally speaking, more happy, because you understand the world and the way that it works, because you don't really question it. But let's talk to Mark Bukowski, a man who questions everything, as indeed I do. Mark, a very good afternoon to you. Hello, Mark, are you there? No, Mark no. is not there. I think we've lost him. We'll try and get him back. Uh, uh, a couple of other uh, tweets have come in. Uh, Diogenes says, When my dad arrived in Australia in 1960, he was given temporary accommodation in Nissan Hut and no benefits. He had to find a house, a job and schools, etc. And he did all that at the age of 50. Millions did. Uh, J-Star says, I meant to say earlier, Ray the airport. I think the lady who moved to Dover from Greenwich meant Mansion Airport near Ramsgate, uh, not, in fact, Maidstone. Uh, and Cliff says, Foulness Island off the coast of Essex was earmarked for the third airport back in the 70s. 80s. Well, certainly, I quite like the idea of, of, the, of the Boris Island airport somewhere in the middle of the Thames estuary. I think that would be a much more sensible place to put it. Uh, maybe they'll resurrect that plan uh, now that the runway uh, for the third runway at Heathrow has been outlawed. I think we've got Mark back. Mark, very good uh, afternoon to you. Sorry, Mike. Yes, um, somebody conspired against uh, <laughs> the, the, the connection. Sorry, I suddenly please, thought, uh, you know, when I said, you know, here's a man that questions everything, um, and then you weren't there, so uh, so I wondered yeah, whether yeah, that yeah. was uh, that was that. But listen, let's Thank talk. Let's talk about branding because there's a very interesting kind of. I suppose not particularly secret, but partially secret method of selling your wares, and that is to get product placement, isn't it, on various movies and on various TV shows. I know the BBC are quite hot now on, on being very careful not to do it, but it's quite subtle when it is done, isn't it? 
Well, there's two levels to it. I think you see that little symbol that comes up if you're watching commercial TV um, that um, designates the fact that the um, item you're about to watch has got product placed in it. Um, oh, I didn't know they did that. How do you, how do you, yeah, where do you yeah. see that? It's a little symbol that comes up. I forget what it is now, but there's been a lot of debate about the fact that commercially, you know, you can make money. Right. And there's, you know, um, program advertising actually going into the content of the program um, is permitted by Ofcom as long as you are warned that that is the case. Right. Um, so, look, product placement in movies is, is, you know, how many films do we watch of the aeroplane taking off with a livery on it and, um, right. you know, hotels, people drinking, soft drinks, Coke, you know. Um, it, it's, it's part of how you raise money. And, of course, you know, the famous Bond movies have, uh, have promoted a certain car or set of cars that uh, are now iconic for their part in those films. Yeah, so, and I mean, is it, I mean, we might as well mention them. Aston, I mean, does Aston Martin benefit, do you think, from James Bond at least once a film crashing one of them? Oh, absolutely, of course. I mean, the glamour, the glitz, the, the romance, you know, the intrigue, um, the DB5 was is iconic because of that. And supposedly uh, there was a story that I think there was a Lotus in one of them. I'm not a Bond geek, so I can't go back. Yeah, there was. There I was mean, a Lotus that went underwater. It became a submarine. Well, the, um, the evidently Lotus, I think it might be Colin Chapman at the time, someone who's got a lot more knowledge about this, parked the car um, outside Cubby Broccoli's office for days and days and days <laughs> on the basis of trying to inspire him to think of replacing um, a Lotus, you know, uh, away from Aston Martin. Yeah. There's always been wars. Look, we, I think we're all wise to it now. And I think that as long as it, it isn't overt... It can be sometimes a joke that um, the very fact that someone's drinking a certain brand can be shoved in your face. It's got to be done creatively. And, and some brands have brought... Um... No. I'm, I'll tell you what, you, I'll tell you what I, the, the story originally, right, is about an iPhone. I'm not sure whether Mark's got an iPhone or not, but uh, I'm going to put him down as a baddie soon, so he's not going to be able to have an iPhone. The story goes, right, that uh, iPhone's product placement, Apple's product placement guidelines insist that only heroes can use iPhones. So if you're going to be in a movie and you're going to be a bad guy, apparently Apple will not let you have an iPhone. So the question I've got, um, sorry, Mark, I think we've got you back now. I'll you just... know, you're right, I've got an iPhone and it's sitting wrong with my headphones, so there you go. <laughs> right, <laughs> so, so, so here's the thing. So Apple apparently have got these product placement guidelines where they say that only the good guys can use an iPhone. So isn't that a bit counterproductive? Because it means that if, you're, if you now know this and you're watching a film and the guy doesn't have an iPhone, he has a Galaxy or something, then you know he's not a nice guy. Well, isn't that the wokey world we live in at the moment? Everything's <laughs> got to be super nice, you know, and uh, the baddies are not... Um, you know, good thing. I mean, this is, you know, you, you, you know that contract has been written by some American lawyer who um, doesn't want to face any backlash. Yes. Um, that everything is good. And, of course, it doesn't work. A reputation specialist. Well, yeah, prob well, I mean, just a lawyer making a lot of money and providing a lot of paperwork that another <laughs> lawyer has to read and yeah, work right. out whether or not there's a, there's a clause to uh, jump on it. Yeah. But, I mean, it's a sort of, it's Americana, isn't it? Everything has got to be squeaky clean and nice and no one's got to be offended and stuff like this. And we're moving into those sort of times. And actually what we know about these times, they're bloody boring. Yeah, they really uh, are. Because we want an edge. Yeah. We want, some, we want some grit in the oyster and that's what people want. Listen, pantomime, you know, what do we love about 
that pantomime the baddie. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, look at the most successful film over the last of the last few months is probably The Joker. You know, one of the most ghastly uh, individuals you could ever set your eyes upon. But people love him. Well, yeah. I mean, if we if we think of all the sort of baddies in history, the the dark side of things is actually a relative life. We can't go through life sucking on some candy floss and uh, floating on a cloud somewhere. No. No, and also the people who think that you can do that actually don't really do it anyway. I mean, like this whole woke business of everyone being nice to one another. I mean, there's never been a more toxic uh, place than social media uh, right now. And I've never encountered so many people who have such hideous thoughts about other people. Well, that's it. I mean, you know, social media does one thing. I think David Bedell said it beautifully. Bedell said it, it weaponizes the worst part of ourselves. Yes. And um, yes, the internet represents the worst and the best in life. And unfortunately, now it's in the hands of people who just don't have the same sort of values yeah. and can turn these things. But like, you can get onto that philosophical conversation. But I mean, it's you know the best things that actually take off reflect reality. And if we, if you think of the the movie that everybody's talking about, the one the Oscar, uh, which is Parasite. Yeah. You know, um, which is a foreign language film in subtitles, you know, captures the reality of what it is to live in, in Korea. And it's not altogether a lovely picture. No. Um, and yet it, it's generating huge box office across the world. So, uh, yes, I mean, Disney, if you want a Disney-esque version, you know, and Disney make a lot of money, you've got Disney. Um, but if you want, you know, it's horses for courses, but we can't homogenize everything until it's vanilla mass yes. that actually has... No up and no down, just some little place that none of us really engage with. Well, I, yeah, I mean, the last thing you want is is the Hollywood ending to every story because not every story has a Hollywood ending. They certainly, they certainly don't, and um, we we need a conversation. And controversy um, builds a conversation, and um, it also allows people to 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 see both sides of the story. And if we if we don't get a, a true vision of that. Um, it becomes a more dangerous world. I think you're absolutely right. Mark, thanks very much indeed. Very dangerous world if you've got a phone of any kind trying to ring this uh, particular show because the phones sometimes play up more than they ought to. Mark Bukowski, their PR expert. Uh, you can't have a Hollywood ending for everything, uh, but you can have a Hollywood ending for today's show, uh, The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, because we're all very happy. Uh, it's been a great week for us so far. Marta uh, has been in the chair. Uh, she's leaving tomorrow, though. She's off to uh, foreign parts. I'm not going to say where because she might have a couple of stalkers out there. Uh, but we hope that she's going to be able to come back without having to self-isolate. So thank you to all of you guys behind the glass. And thank you to all of you for listening. Thank you for ringing. Thank you for tweeting and texting and all of that. We'll be back at 10 o'clock tomorrow. Meanwhile, go and have a look at YouTube. Have a look at the Plank of the Week. You'll be surprised who's won it. We'll be doing Plank of the Month as well very shortly because we're near the end of February. And, of course, Off Air uh, with Douglas Carswell, also worth a watch as well. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.